0: Welcome to Spark London. We tell true stories. We tell them live. And we tell them all across London. To attend one of our live shows, head to sparklondon.com. Thank you very much. Uh, When someone says, oh, we're going to do something slightly different, that sounds quite exciting and dramatic. The exciting, dramatic thing that I'm going to do that's different from everyone else is I've come on with bits of paper. Um... (laughs) and I know, I feel like you should be expecting more than that. You kind of go, really? Is that his act? He's like a special act. He's brought on paper with him. Um, uh, yeah, what it is that is, I'm a stand-up comedian, really, and I kept thinking of all the stories I could tell, and they were all a bit stand-up comedian-y, and it's quite nice to do a gig where I think, oh, I don't have to worry about laughs, and then, of course, I'll panic about it. And so what I did is I printed off some stories that are true, that are from my life and then I realised there was a hitch in that I can't actually see them uh, because I got new glasses a couple of months ago and I've got to that age where the optician said what you need is varifocals. Um, and what he should have actually said was, what we could do is we could just put some paper over your glasses and you'll be able to see just as clearly as you will be with varifocals. I can't see with them or without them. Uh, so, uh, it's splendid. We sat down, I remember, and he kept saying, I said, well, I can't see whether, the, the, well, apart from the prescription, you could have three different types of varifocals. You could have the cheapest, the middling, and the most expensive. And they range from about £49 to 99 to 149 And he said, well, the £49 ones, he said. Uh, he said, really, said, I have to be honest with you, I'd only recommend them to someone, say someone, a very old person who doesn't have much going on in their life and they get up and they do a bit of gardening and they don't really need to focus their eyes in any discernible way Uh, and then maybe they'll sit down and have a curling sandwich for lunch and in the afternoon maybe watch something like Countdown and they'll probably be in bed (laughs) by about 8 in the evening and I thought, that's my life um (laughs) I said, well, someone like you, much younger, with a bit of go-get-about, you you need the top of the range. I said, no, I really don't. But maybe I should have invested. Anyway, so these are, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to be putting, taking them off and putting them back on. And you'll be thrilled to know this is being live-tweeted around the world. Um, and uh, so this is, this is the first story. It's called Architect. And it is about the fact that I don't really know what it is I do. Um, If I had to give a name to what it is that I kind of do to make a sort of living, I would say I am a person who waits for the phone to ring. I am a professional phone ring waiter, which is a bit like a Pizza Express waiter, but with fewer career prospects. You could say I'm a writer, and on those days when my serotonin levels are quite high, even I could say I'm a writer. But if I were to tot up how the hours in my days are spent, I spend many more... "'waiting for the phone to ring than I do writing. "'My phone simply never rings. "'I can't believe this is the case for everybody. "'In fact, I know it's not. "'The old woman who lives in one of the flats above Tesco's "'at the back of me sits on her balcony during the warmer weather "'and has an enormous white cordless telephone "'through which she conducts enormously long conversations "'from breakfast time until the wee small hours.' With a lot of oohing and ring and the occasional burst of machine-gun-like laughter, the daytime and much of the night is passed away by her chattering into the mouthpiece. She never has to wait for the phone to ring. No one has the slightest chance of getting through. Maybe she really is a writer. But for me, as I say, the phone simply never rings. It's as if I round Robin the universe some years back asking for all my calls to be put on hold. And the only people not to get the message are the bank's mortgage arrears department and my mother. The other night, my boyfriend's phone rang. I sat bolt upright. Oh, my God, what's happened, I asked. Who's that at this time? (laughs) It's my mum, said Rory, in the sort of calm, relaxed and untroubled voice, which was the polar opposite of the one I'd employ if I was saying it's my mum in response to a phone call from my mother and on my mobile after 7 (laughs) p.m. (laughs) <laughs> if she was ringing at that time, it would only be with the very worst news. Although, being the sweet and thoughtful person that she is, just like her own mother was, she would probably wait until a more convenient time for me. Back in 1983, my grandmother, who didn't have a phone of her own, held off from calling us from her neighbours with the news that her husband, my step-grandfather, had died four days previously. She hadn't wanted to spoil Christmas. It was heartbreaking that she'd thought to do that, although to be fair, that man's death could never have been described as the worst news possible by anyone, especially my grandmother. Anyway, my mind is occupied by these thoughts of careers, job titles and all the rest of it by a little incident that happened this afternoon. Walking through the back streets of Peckham on the way to the shops, a man on a bicycle was riding towards me and he suddenly braked in the road. Excuse me, he called, yelling to make himself heard over the post fan that suddenly passed between us. But are you an architect? No, I replied, slightly baffled. It's just that you look so much like an architect. (laughs) Really? Any architect in particular? I asked. No, just an architect. No worries. And with that, he was off. So, what does an architect look like? Balding, bearded and middle-aged, obviously. But I can't imagine there are many architects wandering through inner London side roads on a Wednesday clutching little shopping bags. And if there are, they must surely belong to a particular subsection of the architecture world, those for whom it didn't quite work out. (laughs) Maybe it was a famous architect I reminded him of. The only two that come immediately to mind are Christopher Wren and, with my Nazi thing going on, Albert Speer, Like Speer, I too have a capacity for rewriting my role in the war to reflect better on myself. (laughs) The war I'm referring to, however, was the spat I had some years back with another driver over a parking space in a multi-storey in Kingston when she in an exchange of letters via a woman called Sheila at the NCP. (laughs) Albert's record was harder to defend. As for Wren, beyond a shared first name, the similarity ends. It's just dawned on me that Rory's sister, Gillian, is also an architect, but we certainly don't look alike. As a writer, I can't help but think how satisfying it would be if Rory's mother had been calling about her daughter last week, thereby enabling me to type this little story in a neat and story-like way. But she didn't. Rather, she talked to Rory about his father's recuperation from a recent operation, the local ice cream parlour's opening hours, and the lovely weather they'd been enjoying in Dublin that week. And as someone for whom the phone never rings—that's better than a pig in a poke. So that's one little story, and I'll just do one more. I was going to do another one when I got a bit about when I got a bit overexcited about a waiter who kept saying I was in an Indian restaurant in Waterloo, and we made our order, and I ordered a duck shashlik, and the the waiter said that's a very good choice, sir. And I remember there's a bit of me thinking I bet he doesn't say that to everyone. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so this this final story, this one's called Dead Skin. On an otherwise rather drab Sunday afternoon towards the end of last year, Rory and I were fortunate enough to attend one of David Sedaris' recordings for Radio 4. Having never sat in the audience at the BBC Radio Theatre before, I was surprised at how much fun it was. Up until then, my activities in that room were limited to either performing in some shows or producing others. The first of those two is the more enjoyable, but neither is really a barrel of laughs, and so, nestling down in our rather uncomfortable seats to watch a show being recorded, felt a satisfyingly snug and smug treat. I looked round at my fellow audience members, and they seemed, by and large, ordinary enough, just people out to enjoy themselves with their free ticket from the BBC. Up until this point, I'd regarded radio audiences with some suspicion – and so this ordinariness, ordinariness, it was easy when I typed it, caught me a tad unawares. The type of people who attended radio recordings had been the subject of some mockery by those of us who were involved in the. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. ...making of them, I recall. Not entirely unfairly, either. In the very first audience show I produced at the Paris Studios in Regent Street, one of the retakes I was obliged to get from the cast was due to extraneous noises emanating from the front row. Two elderly ladies had been arguing in loud whispers with each other as to the order in which they should eat the picnic they had brought along with them. Settling on a first course of hard-boiled eggs, they made quite a noise as they cracked the shells by wrapping them with a knife one of them produced from a handbag. They then passed a rustling twist of tinfoil between them containing salt with which to season their meal. (laughs) Twenty years later, this audience seemed a far better behaved group and certainly not a discernibly hungry one, although possibly, as I've arrived within a decade or so of the age of the average Radio 4 listener, 56, I've now merely become just like them and so can't see anything odd in it at all. (laughs) In one of his stories, David Sedaris talked of the acquisition of a guest room as being the principal consolation of middle age. In one of his many wonderful turns of phrase, the washer on his penis might have worn out, he explained, but at least he had somewhere people could sleep. And in his case, as he was eager to inform us, he had two such rooms. In my mid-forties, I don't have even one, let alone a pair, and a wave of ennui coursed through me as I reflected on this particular failure of mine. Do something sensible with the money. My father had said to me when I told him of the quite generous redundancy settlement I received when I left the BBC back at the start of this century. Of course I will, I replied, before embarking on two years of long lunches, Paul Smith's suit-buying sprees, several holidays, not earning a penny, and building up an ocean of debt. If I'd spent the money on converting my cellar into an office come guest room instead of booze and schmutter, not only would I have somewhere people could stay, but I'd also have been able to laugh along with the rest of that Sunday's ordinary audience at the next bit of the story, rather than missing it by being wrapped up in this particular chapter in my life story, which I've entitled, This Is Where I Went Wrong. (laughs) I state the bleeding obvious when I say that the disappointments of middle age are manifestly more pronounced than the consolations but at least they often arrive in unexpected forms. What I'm about to tell you, I'm afraid, is a bit disgusting. Well, into my early forties, one of the principal pleasures of bath time was to see if there was skin on the soles of my feet that could be picked at and peeled away. On a good day, once or twice a month if I was lucky, after a reasonable soak, pads of white and dead skin would puff up like prawn crackers in hot oil, (laughs) revealing themselves ready for detachment. But for some time now, my feet have, been, have seemed less enthusiastic in relinquishing their carapace to my prying fingers. Instead of coming away in satisfyingly large pieces, they must have found an alternative method of saying farewell to my feet. And frankly, this saddens me, as picking away at our bodies is one of mankind's genuine solaces. <laughs> Getting sunburnt, therefore, is a mixed blessing for me. <sighs> Horrid though sunstroke surely is, even in the depths of nauseous despair, I remain conscious of the reward to come. (laughs) I once made the mistake of being persuaded by a native of Guernsey that a few days on his island might constitute an enjoyable break. Prior to going, I had visions of merrily cycling about on my own, reading books in sandy coves and spending the evenings eating reasonably priced seafood. As it turned out, the island was far too hilly for cycling, so my daylight hours were spent trudging along country lanes, pushing my rented bicycle past polytunnels of tomatoes, whilst anticipating yet another evening of being stared at in restaurants for eating alone. So embarrassed by my presence were the restaurateurs of Guernsey, I was usually sat in a Bermuda Triangle between the toilets, a coat rack and that thing with spare napkins and cutlery on it. After a couple of days of this grimness, I was desperate for a change of scene, and so attempted to book a ferry to Sark, Sark is an island that prides itself on not having moved beyond the 19th century, although I had visions of the inhabitants being delighted by my arrival with news of the post-atomic age. (laughs) "'I'm afraid there's nothing available,' said the man in the ticket office on the quay after he'd checked his computer. "'Really?' I exclaimed, almost close to tears, at being denied a chance to visit an even smaller island and look at the no-cars that were there. "'It's a busy time of year, you see, the busiest. "'But why?' I cried. Spoon Festival, isn't it? The world and his wife don't want to miss Sark Spoon Festival. Despite it being June, the sunshine Isle that my friend had promised me was shrouded in rain and fog, until, that is, my very last day, when suddenly the clouds cleared and the sun came out, the Nazi defences on the beaches were exposed in all their concrete loveliness, and I decided to soak up some rays. Never have I been so ill in my life from the effects of too much sun." At the airport that evening I was close to curling up on the floor and willingly dying, so grim did I feel, and the next day at home I could barely move with the pain. Worryingly, later in the week, due to all this redundancy money, I was due to fly to Lisbon for a holiday with my friend Caroline. I'm really not sure I'll be able to make it, I said to her on the phone. As she pondered contingency plans, I focused on the considerable tracts of my body that were pulsating with a heat suitable for browning a joint of meat. But by a miracle, an antihistamine-based miracle, I did manage to get to Portugal, and on about day three I started to be rewarded for my pains. Come and look at this, I shrieked with delight from behind our hotel room's bathroom door one evening. Caroline, who we've always called deaf for a reason now lost to any of us, sounded dubious at my offer. It's amazing, I confidently reassured her. An offer to look at anything that is produced behind a bathroom door is unlikely to be a universally appealing one and so you'll be really amazed at what I've done is what I said in my softest, most reassuring tones as she nervously poked her head in. Proudly, I was holding aloft a length of dead skin. The years since have lent this piece of charred leg almost mythical proportions. In my mind's eye, it is longer even than the leg that had produced it. Although at that time... "'Death demonstrated lesser look of awe "'and rather one of a woman who would experience "'not a scintilla of regret were she to reach the end of her days "'without seeing such a thing. "'After Lisbon we travelled on to Sintra, "'and despite ogling the lunatic palace there "'I was in a greater thrall to the skin "'my slowly recovering body was shedding "'like a snake in a hurry. "'Death, however, had learned to avoid my siren call.' and would instead sternly ask me to clear out from the bed we were sharing the bits of me my body had chosen to discard during the night. Finally, we wound up for a two-night stay in a small fishing village. Standing on our apartment's balcony one night, we looked down at the street below, at a group of women as they wailed and genuflected around a badly painted wooden statue of a saint, and I wondered if the spoons of Sark engendered such enthusiasm amongst the locals. Later on, eating yet another Portuguese meal that seemed mainly to be made of salt, we talked about what we'd both most enjoyed about the holiday. Peeling all that dead skin off has been the best bit for me, I admitted to my friend. (laughs) For a good few days afterwards, back at home, my body still kept coming up with the goods. From my shoulders and upper arms and most tantalisingly from my back, an area so hard to reach I rang deaf to try and persuade her to come over and help. Several years later, a doctor explained to me that I'd probably experienced burns to my skin of a degree the number of which I've now forgotten, but do remember wasn't to be recommended. For a decade, there were white marks on my ankles where my socks had been, not with sandals but with trainers, thank you, and I felt a modicum of disappointment the day I realised they weren't there anymore. Like scars I could no longer share from a battle I was proud to have participated in. And now here I am, far more careful in the sun than I was back in the days when I was blowing licence fee payers' money on holidays. And the only skin peeling I'm left to enjoy is that of an onion, as even the stuff on my feet or after a bath doesn't seem to come up with the goods anymore. There we are. Thank you very much. Thank you. For more stories, head to sparklondon.com. Spark London is produced by Joanna Yates. With audio production by Matt Hill. At rethinkdaily.co.uk. <laughs>